You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Carrington Smith. Carrington is a single mom, attorney, business owner, and executive search professional. She's joining me today to discuss her memoir, Blooming, Finding the Gifts in the Shit of Life. I have to say, I love that title. Thank welcome, you. Welcome to Uncorking Story, Garrington. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, the reason that I have the title that I have is because it's funny, you know, uh, people ask me when I was writing, they're like, what are you writing about? And I'm like, finding gifts and shit. <laughs> that was my elevator pitch answer, you know, and where I really started thinking about it, I mean, a lot of what my book is is about is about me. I'm a super late bloomer. I mean, I I turned 55 in September. Uh, I do not believe that for a second. It's true. Um, I just am somebody that I was very, you know, wrapped up in trying to please everyone else and was not able to live authentically to much later in life. And so, um, anyway. But as far, as far as the title goes, the reason I chose that title is because we all have shit that happens to us. And colloquially, that's what we refer to it as, whether it's the trauma, the difficulties, the failures, the negative experiences we have in life, we refer to that as I've got all this shit going on. However, it's also a double entendre. And that is that shit is quite literally fertilizer. And so finding gifts and fertilizer now that makes sense, right? And in order to bloom, you need fertilizer. So it turns out that these difficult experiences we've had are actually what we need to bloom into our greatness. And if we yes. don't have those experiences, we won't come into full bloom. So so I know we jumped right into it, but I have to ask my typical first question, which is where does your story begin? Where does yeah. your yeah, tell me? So my story actually begins um before I was born. And that is my great great grandfather founded international paper company. Oh, sure. I know that well. My, um, they're based, they used to be based here in Stanford, Connecticut. Yeah. Well, yeah. so um, uh, he founded that company that had paper mills all over, um, obviously around the world. And not just that, but my other grand, I guess, great grandfather, he had a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. He founded a number of different banks. I mean, it was just a very, very successful, um, great Gatsby kind of family. And they lived at the top of society. 
And so my grandmother, I mean, she had her debutante ball at the Ritz Carlton and she went to finishing school in Switzerland. And, you know, that was her life. Somewhere along the line, some of that money was lost or went to other people. And so both, both of my, both my grandfather and grandmother came from these very, very wealthy families, but yet it didn't pass to them. And so I was raised in a family that was totally caught up in keeping up with that prior life they had, but didn't really have the means to live that life. And so it was a family that was obsessed with what everyone else was doing, but also was full of resentment. And so that trickled down to me where my brother and sister in particular, my brother is the oldest firstborn male and my sister is the firstborn female. They were given pretty much everything. And since I was the baby and the last born, I literally was given leftovers. And to give you the, the stark contrast, my grandmother, my mother, and my sister went to Miss Porter's school in Farmington, Connecticut. I'm sure you probably know the school. I, I've never been there. Um, I was not a student there. Well, it's but, all girls. Uh, so <laughs> well, hey, you don't, you don't know what I was born as. I know, right? I, I think you're making something here. <laughs> I caught myself as soon as I said that, but, but yes. Um, yeah, so for, it was really important to my grandmother and mother that they have this tradition carry on. And so my sister went there, but to show the contrast in our life experiences, I mean, at this point in time, I mean, I was born on the East Coast, but we had moved to the Seattle area. Um, my sister is at Miss Porter's and on the weekend, she's hanging out with the private jet crowd, going to debutante balls in New York and taking trips, fabulous places. I'm hanging out with my friends in vacant lots, drinking beer from a keg. Okay. I mean, I can tell you what I would prefer in that situation. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, maybe beer from a keg at a private jet. I don't know, but <laughs> we, we can combine the two. Sure. That's fine. Yeah. But that, I mean, so we're 18 months apart, but we had completely different, you know, life experiences. And so, and then when she went to go to college, she went to university of Southern California and my brother was at Stanford. And they said to me, well, you need to go in state because we can't afford for you to go anywhere else. So I went to Washington State University while they were at USC and Stanford. Yeah. And I mean, that it kind of just goes from there. But so the thing, the, the punchline of all this is that I think I turned out the best. And I think I ended up having, I had the best life and the most meaningful life. And one of the best things about that is because I was the last child and I wasn't given these opportunities. And because also I sucked at tennis, there's a whole chapter in the book about that, how horribly bad I suck at tennis and how important that was to my family. I was rejected by my family. And I mean, wholeheartedly rejected. That turned out to be a gift because rejection equals redirection. And because I didn't have to keep up with the rest of my family. I had the freedom to find out who I really was and what I was about. And so, well, people were like, aren't you bitter that you didn't get the stuff your brother and sister got? I'm like, wow, did I turn out better? You know, and I'm yeah. happy and I have a purposeful life. And so my life story is about taking these life experiences. And oh, by the way, when they made me go to Washington State University, I was raped there. So. <laughs> That's another sort of, it's, I opened the book, the chapter is about that rape, but it's what happened because of that. I ended up moving to Austin, Texas, away from the Seattle area. 
I found out I was a survivor and not even just a survivor, but a thriver. And I took these negative experiences and saw them and claimed them as the fabric of who I was. And instead of letting them drain me and me feeling like a victim and feeling sorry for myself, I used them as something to propel me to a successful, purposeful life. And so that is my story. Yeah. And it, um, you know, it, it starts off with, um, you know, you could easily see where you would be resentful, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the whole family, there's like resentment probably running through like the Absolutely. blood of the family, right? Yes. And, you know, you see your older siblings who are, are getting these things that you can't have, but your experiences made you who you are and, and who you are right now. Um, so it's almost like a hidden gift, um, not having that, 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 that sort of same trajectory. It's, it's more than a hidden gift. It's, it's such an important gift. I think that the point of my book is about going back and re-examining the trauma, the difficulties, the failures in your life and claiming them and discovering the gifts in them. I mean, for instance, the difficult childhood part, it wasn't just, you know, not getting what my brother and sister got. My father was a malignant narcissist. And so I was constantly walking on eggshells, wondering what's going to blow up next. And looking back, I realized that because I lived, because I had that particular childhood, I developed extremely strong into intuition abilities. And if I, and I'm so grateful because those, my intuition has been incredible. It's such a value to me. If I'm grateful for that gift, I came to the realization, I must also be grateful for the path that birthed it. And so I came to a place where I was actually grateful for my childhood. And when I reached that place, I was able to find forgiveness for my father. Yeah. And so it's about going back and re-examining your shit and claiming it and finding the good in it and using it to move you forward. Yeah. I mean, that's all, you know, on the path of becoming, you know, what I would call a healthy adult. Um, yeah. <laughs> we all, you're right. I mean, we all have shit we bring, you know, with us, even if you have an ideal childhood or your parents yeah. were great. I mean, there's still some shit there because you're raised by human beings. Exactly. Um, you know, but uh, t tell me a little bit more. So, you know, you've got, you've got this trauma in your past, right? You've got this resentment, but how do you start sort of transforming your life to a point where you're thinking about it in a much more healthy way? Because I'm sure that doesn't happen overnight, right? And that doesn't just happen by writing a book. What was you know, what, what was the light bulb that went off in your head or what was the process like? Remember now, I, I am about to turn 55. So <laughs> this, some of this is like childhood, yeah. college, you know. Yes, I did a lot of therapy. Um, I actually spent a full year of doing psychoanalysis where I literally five days a week was spending an hour a day on the couch deprogramming the stuff that I got from my family and kind of, you know, also doing therapy on the rape, but still, I mean, it's, it's life is a journey and, and, and you start to feel better and then something else happens. <laughs> so I've been married twice and it was really after the second divorce that I had another real moment to do a lot of self-discovery, more therapy, et cetera. And it was after my second divorce that one of my friends said to me, Carrie, you probably don't want to hear this now, but with adversity comes opportunity. And that friend, thank you, friend. I can't, I can't remember who said it, but um, in that moment, I came to understand that when people get divorced, when I got divorced, we tend to focus on what we've lost. And 
if I looked instead, if I shifted my mindset from what I lost to what I was gaining and found the opportunity in it, I would have a very different experience. And so instead of focusing on what I lost, I suddenly realized, wow, I have a blank slate. I'm not keeping my dad happy anymore. I'm not keeping my ex-husband happy anymore. I can suddenly live this authentic life that's about me and my desires and wants, et cetera. And so suddenly the world was my oyster. So I went from feeling trapped to feeling empowered. And all of that happened with a shift in mindset. I mean, it transformed my life. And once I went through that experience that time, every time something bad happened, I would ask myself, where's the opportunity in this? And I'm not saying, I'm not about minimizing feelings and I'm not about toxic positivity. I totally fully embrace, feel your feelings, go through the grieving process or the emotional process, whatever it is, you know, do the therapy, do the work. But as you're going through it, always have that little, you know, sort of star up here saying, North star saying, there's going to be some gift or opportunity in this. And once you do that one time and two times and three times, it, it becomes a muscle. I like to say mindset is a muscle. And so once you start to flex it and you really build up that muscle, you heal faster, you get to opportunity and, and positivity and all of that faster. And so now it's a, like, it happens multiple times a day, you know, you have something bad happen and you immediately go, wait, maybe I can find something good in this. What is it? How can I look at this differently? What can I learn from this experience? Even if it's just learning, you know, what good can I get from this? And so that's really transformed my life. Yeah. I love that mindset as a muscle. Um, you know, we, we don't, we don't always think of it like that. Right. So, but it is something that has to be exercised and, you know, and taken care of. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So you, you know, you have, you wear many hats, you know, as I was rattling off <laughs> or reading the yes. introduction, single mom, attorney, business owner, executive search professional. What, um, what don't you do? <laughs> My taxes. No. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to pretend you didn't say that. No, no, I do. Someone else does them. I mean, I don't do them. Okay. <laughs> I, I, no, I'm. I'll be a little Wesley Snipes situation happening here. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm very, uh, how do I put it? I'm uptight about doing the right thing. So there's no worries about that. But let's see, I don't cook. Um, <laughs> don't do that either. Um, that's a good thing and a bad thing as well. But yeah, so there's, you know, I, I don't practice law anymore. I practiced for seven years. And then I went through my own career journey of deciding I wanted to take a different career path and ended up getting into executive search. And so, and I own my own executive search firm. So and then, of course, during COVID is when I wrote the book and sort of launched into this whole other chapter of life, but still doing the executive search, that's what pays the bills. But this is my passion project. And it's it's been incredible to be able to touch a lot of people's, li people's lives through this book. So did you, you know, grow up at all thinking that you would write a book someday or is it, did this come, really come as, as an opportunity during the pandemic? Thank you for asking that. Um it, it really did come as an opportunity during the pandemic. I was an English major. I would write short stories, but I always went to the, this place of, I'm just an ordinary person. Why would anybody care about what I write? And what happened with the pandemic is that we were experiencing a universal trauma. Everybody was experiencing it to collectively. 
And I came to realize that my response to it was very different than a lot of other people's. I heard about my friends and saw on TV and social media, people with their recycle bins full of liquor bottles and, you know, stuffing their faces full of food just to cope with this trauma. When, when it was announced that, you know, we were going into lockdown, my response was, okay, kind of like, bring it. I have been through so much. What do I need to do to get through this? What's the path? What do I need to do to protect my family? I suddenly have all this free time. What it's suddenly, it's an opportunity of a forced sabbatical. I went from being locked up like I was in prison to viewing it as a forced sabbatical. What can I do with this time? How can I better myself with this sudden amount of time that's available to me? And so the way I viewed it was as an opportunity. I also viewed it historically. And that is, I said to myself, this is like, you know, like during the Great Depression, there's the, like half the five, Fortune 500 companies were birthed during the Great Depression. Because what happens during these universal traumas is that there are times of creativity and innovation. And so I immediately was like, how can I innovate around this? What can I do differently to succeed and differentiate myself from my competition? So my perspective was so different. So when I, I felt compelled to write the book all of a sudden, because I realized that the way that I was responding to this was very much rooted into all that I had been through in the past and that I had this mindset muscle and this emotional resilience and that while I don't believe in telling people what to do, I do believe that people learn through stories. And I thought, let me share my story. And hopefully it might serve as a roadmap to some people on how they can look at things differently. So, you know, this is, it's a big initiative. Writing a book is a big initiative. Um, you know, I've written eight or nine, nine that, well, eight that people know about. The nine, <laughs> but um, yeah, I know, I know how much work it is. Um, what surprised you the most about the writing process and then eventually the publishing process? Well, because it was interesting. So many people asked me because it's a memoir, like, are you sure? Like what you're going to put in there? And I really kept that very, I didn't tell people what I was putting in the book for that reason. I didn't want people to have a commentary about it and discourage me from putting out there what I wanted to put out there. So, but I actually wrote the book in three months. And I think it's because I felt compelled. So in other words, I didn't have a choice. And so I just put my mind to it and just whipped it out. And what, as far as the publishing process, what was interesting to me is that the publishing process took nine months. <laughs> Three so, times longer than the book. Yes, yes. And so it was really interesting kind of learning that process and, it, you know, going through that whole thing. I'm really glad we were able to get it out as quickly as we were because I felt it was very, um, it was the right time to release the book. And so we got it out. It was out November of 21. So it's when it was re released. Um, yeah. So God bless you for writing nine books. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't do, I, I didn't um, do them in a, uh, a three month time frame. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's, it's a labor of love, but it is, it is, you know, it is a lot of work because um, you know, I, it's interesting. I, I talked to a lot of authors um, and they usually tell me that um you know, writing is the easy part and it's everything that you have to do to, to promote the book. That's the, sort of the more challenging part, because a lot of times writers by nature are a little bit more introverted 
Um, I will exclude myself from that because I don't consider myself an introvert, but um, writing is a solitary process. And then you got to go out there and you got to promote it and you got to get it in front of people, um, which, uh, which could be a challenge. And of course, the editing process too, because you're getting, you're getting a lot of feedback and, you know, you might not always agree with it, but, um, you know, anyway, that's, uh, that's more, uh, more neither here nor there, I suppose. Um, but did anything surprise you uh, about yourself? Did you learn anything about yourself as you were writing this memoir? Yeah, I mean, one of the things during that whole writing process and editing process was I, I came to understand I had a very clear voice and I knew who I was when I was writing and what I wanted to say. And so for me, actually being an English major, I thought that you know with the editing process, I would be more threatened by like, them telling me to move something here or do something differently. Honestly, I respected them as the authority on that, that, you know, I haven't been that person, done that kind of stuff since college. So I'm not as um, precise about it as I used to be. But what was critical to me was that I never lost my voice. They didn't change anything that changed the tone or spirit of what I was saying. And I had total clarity about that. And that was, honestly, it's like, I felt like I finally had come into my own. So it was really a beautiful thing. Yeah. And how's the reception uh, to the book been? It's been phenomenal. I mean, it really has been. I feel super blessed. I've had people tell me that, I mean, one of my favorite reviews I got was that it, it, by writing this book, I gave other people permission to tell their stories. And that to me is like, oh, what? that's a gift. Because all I wanted from this experience was to help other people as I like to say this book, you know, while it was about me, it's not about me. It's about helping other people. And hopefully by maybe sharing my life experiences, maybe they can avoid some of the pitfalls that I fell into. They can see themselves and go, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I read this because now I'm going to, you know, approach things differently. I mean, that's why I wrote it. Yeah. Well, um, I always like to say that we uh, want to continue to dig into the story behind the story, which is your story and get to know you a little bit more. So to do that, I've got some fun questions for us. And awesome. The first, the first is, um, tell me, Carrington, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were a kid? Oh, wow. Um, when I was a kid. Well, okay. So in our family, TV was um, very, very, very restricted. And um, we usually had to watch it on the sly. So the, the shows that I would try to watch on the sly, if you're gonna go, go big or go home. So I liked like Love American Style. Do you remember that show? I do remember that show. <laughs> or The Love Boat. I oh, mean, I love The Love Boat. Watch it yeah. all the time. I watch it yeah. all the time. So those were the kinds of shows that I liked to watch. Um, I just, I I just got to the episode where Captain Subings finds out he's got a daughter. Um, so Vicky, when Vicky was introduced to the show, I just got to that episode in season two. Wow. Yeah, no, I know. I'm, I'm a fan. I used to play Love Boat as a kid. I'm, it's yeah. so, such a nerdy thing to say, but, um, I did. But those were the most scandalous shows available to us. Oh, you, so. could, add, you could add Dallas to that list, right? I mean, True. I know you're in Austin, but. Yeah. Well, at the time I was in Seattle when I was growing True. up. So, True. but it did inform my. Uh, beliefs about Texas. When I came down here for the first time and I got to Austin, I fully expected a big, huge stretch Cadillac with longhorns on the front, you know, convertible Cadillac with longhorns on the front. And I expected cactus and desert. 
and got to tech to Austin and it's, you know, rolling green hills and, and yeah. lakes. And I was like, wait, this is a, this is kind of like a, uh, not quite as, as same height or elevation as Seattle, but it was very similar as far as like green and, and water. So. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. No love boat, man. Oh, I'm glad you said that. Um, how about musical artists? Who did you listen to growing up? Oh, um, was music as taboo as TV or? It, well, it was. Well, the first concert I went to was Chicago 17. Chicago, as in like Peter Cetera, Chicago? Like, yeah, yeah, okay. Chicago. Yeah. And that one, that was my high school yearbook quote was from Chicago. You don't know what you've got until it's gone and you find out too little, too late, Chicago. So, but of course I listened to Madonna. Um, but yeah, I was... I'm trying to remember who the like Bay City Rollers. Um, <laughs> you know, we what if we we had um I'm forgetting the artists. I'm not so good about remembering them, but who do you like to listen to now? Now, oh, I have a very eclectic music taste. Um, everything from Lizzo to <laughs> Um, I went and saw Justin Bieber in concert re recently. Oh, he very was cool. Great. Yeah, to, you know, country. Um, I like to say I like every kind of music except country with banjo and opera. <laughs> the banjo reminds me of Deliverance too much. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I actually, so part of my journey when I got divorced was my ex-husband picked all the restaurants we went to and, and the music we would listen to. And so when I got divorced, the, one of the first dates I went on, this guy asked me like, what are your favorite restaurants in Austin? And like, what kind of music do you listen to? And I couldn't answer the question. So I actually go through in my book and I talk about my favorite restaurants in Austin, how I went through this journey of self-discovery to find out who I was and what I liked. This is a very female experience, I think, yeah. but um, and I actually created a playlist in it that's in conjunction with my book that includes all these great um, music or, you know, I guess sort of female theme songs, um, like I Will Survive and things like that. So anyway, so there's a playlist that is available to download on Spotify in conjunction with the book. Oh, very cool. Have you ever heard of the band Cake? Yes. So they do a version of I Will Survive. Um, which is phenomenal. I'll have to check it out. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you can actually hear the lyrics. Cause I think in the Gloria Gaynor version, yeah, you can't really get them all because it's so fast and there's such a big beat behind it. Yeah. But Holy mail a cakes version, definitely worth, uh, definitely worth listening to. I will check it out. Um, you mentioned before kind of being a late bloomer. Is that what you meant? Kind of finding yourself later in life or. Yeah, really. And, and also I, I did exactly what I was told. And that I, I knew that I was smart. And so I always got good grades and was able to go to good schools and all of that. And I transferred from Washington State to University of Texas, which is how I ended up in Austin and then went to Tulane Law School. But I became a lawyer because I thought that was what I was supposed to do, not because it was really what I wanted to do or who I really was or what I was about. And so I went through this whole period of self-discovery and figuring out you know, really what I'm passionate about and what's important to me. And I mean, that's still ongoing, but really, I mean, I think I figured that out way later than most people. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's true. And some, some adults only find themselves in later adulthood after they've been through 
you know, some a divorce or some kind of big life changing incident, especially if you get married young. I mean, if you get married really young, then you really don't even know who you are sometimes before you absolutely make a big life commitment like that. Um, yeah. Well, I like to say that we spend most of our life trying to fit in and mm. what God really intended us to do was to stand out. And so it's really our differences that we need to celebrate, not our similarities. And that is something that took me many years to figure out. But now I'm, I'm like, okay, well, how am I different? And how can I, as you know, in business, having a differentiate, differentiate, differentiating, I can't say it, um, factor is, is usually what propels your business forward. You want to somehow differentiate yourself. So you, you, you learn to embrace those differences in business, but for some reason, personally, it's not the same thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's so interesting you say that because um, I've, I feel like I've been trying to fit in my entire life. And then yeah. in my late forties, I'm, I'm realizing that, you know, I, I don't want to fit anymore. I don't want to conform to other people's expectations of me. And I tell brands, cause I consult with brands all the time. You need to differentiate. You need to stand out. You have to be different than X, Y, and Z. Absolutely. Shit, why don't we do that as people? You know, that's the why, thing. why do we feel like the, the need to conform? Wow. Well, and that's something I actually, someone asked me recently, um, as far as in the executive search world, people are now worried about maybe getting laid off. And so I've been coaching people on how to be irreplaceable and the way to be irreplaceable is to be different. So if you're just another cog in the wheel, you're easily replaced, but yeah. if you're sticky, whether it's because of relationships or because you do something different, then you're hard to get rid of. I want to be hard to get rid of. Exactly. Jeez. Now, now I'm going to have to, I'm going to be thinking all weekend now. <laughs> Why do we have to do this before a holiday weekend? I'm sorry. <laughs> um, how do you feed, uh, if at all, your inner child? Wow. Um, this is where we get deep. Okay. Well, you know, actually, one of the things that I have done, this is, I mean, a lot of it's, you know, reading self-help books and saying affirmations and things like that. But one of the things that really helped maybe not feed, but heal my inner child was um, I did something called healing hypnosis. And what happened with that is the therapist travel, had me travel back to a prior trauma. And as the adult and mother that I am today, I was able to speak to myself at age seven and say, you know, what happened to you was wrong and, and you're loved and you didn't do anything wrong. And, and, you know, so have a conversation with my former self and that helped to heal that wound. It's really amazing. Oh, that's a powerful exercise. I did something recently, um, similar in a, uh, I went on this, um, intensive, uh, week-long thing. And, um, you know, part of it was a, uh, kind of morning yoga with guided visualization and, and at the end, we're sitting on a park bench with our, you know, younger self and talking to them. And, you know, I grown man burst out in tears. It's amazing. <laughs> it's to, incredible. You know, but yeah, um, yeah no, it's, it's a powerful exercise. It's a powerful exercise. Yeah. Um, how do you feel when you are staring at a blank sheet of paper and you need to write something? You know, what does the blank page do for you? Ah, uh, um, I, I feel empowered. Mm -hmm. Tell me more. Yeah. Well, so one of the affirmations that I started saying to myself um, as I started the writing process was about the fact that writing comes easily to me. And so as I started to say that on a daily basis, and I, there's something else I say about that too, about that, 
you know, what, what comes through. But um, I literally, every time I would sit down, I have no problem writing. I just feel empowered. And, and then again, I guess with the feedback I've gotten on the book, come to understand that, that I have something to say. So. Yeah. So uh, along those lines, um, what would you tell an aspiring author or someone who comes up to you and says, you know, Carrington, I, I, I want to do what you did. You know, I want to write a book. Um, what would you tell them? They say, how do I get started? Well, the first thing I would say, and this is advice someone gave me is never write about something you haven't done the work on yet. And so, I mean, I had done the therapy, I had done the work. And even like I talk about prior relationships, I went back to those people and said, look, I'm, I actually gave a rough draft, a couple rough drafts of the book to my ex-husband and said, you know, this is what I'm putting in here. And because I, we have children together, let's, let's iron this out so that we can come to mutual agreement. And there's, you can, you can say your truth in a lot of different ways. And so we made some changes that he felt were important to him. And so I think that's the other thing that people get stuck on is they start to tell their story and then they worry about what everyone else thinks. And so I say, I mean, I actually, while it was during COVID, I actually traveled to some lovely empty hotels. Um, <laughs> it was great. The, the rates were so cheap. And I, um, but so I could like sit by the ocean and just go for a walk and then come back and write. And not having the feedback or input of other people was really important to my writing process because then it just flowed because there was no interference. Do you uh, get along with your ex-husband, the one you were just talking about? We co-parent together very, very well. Okay. Yeah. I always wonder what the secret to that is. Um, well, I think for me, when I got divorced, I understood that I mean, he came from a divorced family and he was very concerned that he wasn't going to get the time with his kids that he wanted or that I was going to be talking negatively about him. And he was also concerned that I was going to be like, you know, just having guy after guy coming through. They weren't going to know who their father was and none of that happened. So I actually made, I, as soon as we got divorced and I moved out, I, I hung up photo of their father on each of their bedroom walls, you know, so they understood this is dad and did everything I could, could to enforce and facilitate that relationship because I understood that to have a healthy child in adulthood, they had to have a good and positive relationship with their father. And then if I ever talked negatively about him, they would internalize that as me talking negatively about them because they are part and parcel of him. So I never spoke negatively about him. Look at you, healthy adult that you are. <laughs> I still don't believe you're almost 55. Uh, um, I'll have to take your word for it. Yeah, a plastic surgeon on speed dial. So, <laughs> uh, My last question for you um, is, um, this is one I ask everybody too, which is, I call it my Brad Paisley letter to me question, which is um, one of my favorite Brad, Brad Paisley songs. But if you could write a letter to your younger self and, and have them read it, what would you, what would you tell uh, your younger self? Oh, you are beautiful. You are, you are just a beautiful soul. You are a, a bright light and just know and trust that and ignore all the BS that's coming your way because God's got a great life for you ahead of it. Did you doubt that you were beautiful? Oh, my father affirmatively told me I was not. I mean, how does that happen? When I was like eight years old, I asked my dad, I said, dad, am I pretty or am I beautiful? And um, he gave me the once over, he looked me up and down and he said, nah, no, you're not. 
because I, I don't want you to be set up for disappointment in life and think that you're beautiful and have, you know, not get that response. He goes, but your sister, now she's beautiful. And it wasn't until literally like two years ago that when I had a conversation with my sister, as I was writing the book, she said, oh, he said the same thing to me, but in reverse. He loved creating division in the family. And so he drove a wedge between me and my sister and me and my mom. And we all competed for his attention. It was very manipulative, sicko thing to do. Yeah. That's, I mean, you mentioned the word narcissist and uh, you know, there's, there's no doubt about it. That's, that's, yeah. <laughs> that gives you a hundred points in the narcissist uh, test right there. Exactly. And that's why, even though I've gone through so much healing and therapy, being beautiful has always been incredibly important to me. And it's not, and I, as I like to say to people, when you look at me and I look a lot younger than I actually am is also because I bloom so late, it's really important to me that how I look externally mirrors how I feel internally. And I am a very youthful, energetic person. And so it's really important to me for those two things to be in sync. Yeah. Well, there you go. I think it's a great point for us to end on. Uh, although I will say, or we'll ask, um, if people want to get in touch with you, Carrington, um, social media, website, what uh, what kind of handles can you, can you share with our listeners? Yes. Well, the book, Blooming, Finding Gifts in the Shit of Life, is available on Amazon.com. And I actually recorded it um, as well. So it's available on, on Audible. And then my book website is carrington-smith.com. And all my social is at Carrington ATX for Austin, Texas. So you can find me in all those places. All right. Well, Carrington, thank you so much for dropping by and corking a story and let me letting me uncork yours. And uh, all the best with the book and with life in general. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.